just an awesome, you know, all the baby boomers out there. I mean, all the millennials out there. Well, this morning, I want to talk about defying the odds. Defying the odds. All right, how many see it half full? Raise your hands. How many see it half empty? <laughs> yeah. They say if you see it half empty, you're a pessimist. If you see it half full, you're an optimist. And I have to be honest with you, there are times in my life, my life through different circumstances, I see it half empty. There are other times in my life where I see it half full, especially when you're talking about my sports teams. I went to bed Wednesday night, and before I, I checked the Mets score, the Mets were winning nine to nothing against the Marlins. Why was that so important to me? Because I knew if the Mets could win their last five games, all the Mets had to do was win their last five games, and all the Milwaukee Brewers had to do was lose their last five games, and the Mets would be in the playoff. Defying the odds. Well, that is defining odds because, you know, the chances of the Mets win the last five games, that, that's pretty possibility. But the possibility or the odds of the Brewers losing their last five games. But, you know, you, you have to remember, I was 13 in 1973 when Tug McGraw came off the mound patting his, you gotta believe, you gotta believe. Remember that, Phil? And I went to bed remembering, you gotta believe. The Mets can do it. I wake up Thursday morning and saw that the Mets won. Then I checked the box scores, and the Brewers won against the Reds. Ushers, could, could, could we usher him The Brewers, the Brewers, Milwaukee Brewers, beat the Reds, and knocked the Mets out of the playoffs. So I don't know if any of you Mets fans check out MetsMarized.com, MetsMarized.com, and I wanted to check the morning headline. So I went to MetsMarized.com, MetsMarizedOnline.com to check out the morning headline. And here was the morning briefing. Just wait till next year. Just wait till next year. Right, Phil? Just, just wait till next year. Turn in your Bibles to Judges chapter 3. The seventh book of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. The seventh book of the Old Testament, the book of Judges. I want us to take a look at somebody who defied the odds. Are you ready? How many of you have never heard the story of Shamgar? Raise your hand. Shamgar. Come on, don't be embarrassed. Shamgar. Shamgar. 
is a man who defied the odds. Stand for the reading of God's word. Believe it or not, in the life of Shamgar, he's only mentioned twice in two verses of the Old Testament. Here we go. After Ehud came Shamgar, son of Anath, who struck down 600 Yankees. Oh, no. 600 Philistines with an ox goad. He, too, saved Israel. You may be seated. Let me just give you a little background to where we are in history at this point. A little background to the book of Judges. It starts with the death of Joshua. All the tribes are now in their allotted territories in the promised land. And at this time, they should be enjoying the full pleasure. They should be enjoying the full joy of the promised land. But they were not. Judges tell us that the Israelites were not obedient in driving out the rest of the Canaanites or the rest of the inhabitants in the promised land. They failed to do that. Why was that so important? Because God knew if they did not drive out the Canaanites from the land, Israel would adapt their corrupt morals as well as their idolatry worship, especially how they used to sacrifice children to the God of Molech. So instead of enjoying the joy and the pleasure because of disobedience, they were always being threatened by their enemy. Chapter 2 talks about the downward spiral in the life of Israel. Over and over, this is what happened. Because of Israel's disobedience, God would deliver the Israelites in the hands of their enemies. And their enemies would take advantage of them. To the point where it got so bad, Israel would finally cry out to God. God hears, and God would raise up what they called back then a judge. It's not like we know as a judge today. We know them more like a warrior or a deliverer. God would raise up a deliverer or a judge to deliver the Israelites. In fact, there's 13 different warriors or deliverers or judges in the book of Judges. God would raise up a deliverer. Israel then would serve God for a period of time, but human nature is they would fall right back into disobedience. God would then hand them over to the enemy. Israel would finally get tired, repent. God would bring up a deliverer. And it's, it's a cycle that happened over and over and over again in the book of Judges. We are at a period where Israel has been disobedient and the Israelite nation is in great distress because of their arch enemy, the Philistines. 
You say, how do you get all of that from this? Well, there's another judge by the name of Deborah. Whoa, whoa, wait, wait. A woman? Yep. A woman deliverer. Who after she delivered Israel, she writes a victory song. And in that victory song, guess who she mentions? Shamgar. And it's through her song of victory that gives us a little bit more insight into the life of Shamgar and what was taking place in Israel at the time. In Judges chapter 5, get back here. Did we go back? Yes. In the days of Shamgar of Anath, in the days of Jael, the roads were abandoned. Travelers took winding paths. Village life in Israel ceased. Or if you have a footnote in your Bible, it'll say warriors. Warriors ceased. Ceased until I, Deborah, arose. Arose as a mother in Israel. As we look at this verse, I want to look at terror for a moment. In the days of Shamgar, roads were abandoned. Nobody was on Route 9. Why were roads abandoned? Because they were fearful of being robbed, mugged, and killed by the Philistines. What they would do is they would take the, bath, the back paths. There was a sense of fear because of their enemies. Not only were the roads barren, but it says that what? It says that village life ceased. The Freehold Raceway Mall was barren. The villages ceased to operate. People went up into hill countries to live. Why? Because they didn't want to expose themselves to being victims to the Philistines and being raided and attacked. Great sense of fear came upon them. Roads were not traveled. Villages ceased to exist. Men and women went up into the hill country to hide. Not only that, but there was a sense of being vulnerable. When it says that there was no warrior, you have to remember back in 1 Samuel chapter 13, during that time, it was reported as not a blacksmith could be found in the whole land of Israel because the Philistines had said, otherwise, the Hebrews will make swords and spears. They were very vulnerable from the front and from the back. They had no weapons. They had no warriors. All of their defense was taken away. Because of the enemy, can you imagine being defenseless? A fear of being vulnerable? A fear of panic? The life that you know it now is gone. 
the terror. Now, I want to talk about the tool for a moment. What in the world is an ox goad? I found out that an ox goad is a pole that's generally five to eight feet tall, and it has a point on the end. You say, well, where do you get all that from? Well, remember, because there was no blacksmiths, the Philistines wiped all the blacksmiths out so there could be no swords or weapons of, of warfare. Because of that, the Israelites, Scripture tells us, had to go down to the Philistines in order to sharpen their farm tools. And it says that the price was two-thirds of a shekel for sharpening a plowshare. A plowshare is like the, uh, the, the plow, the, the blade of the plow. The maddox is like a pickaxe. Uh, and a third of a shekel for sharpening forks, axes, and for repointing goads. Now, some of you may be thinking that why... Would the Philistines allow the Israelites to come down and have their farm equipment sharpened? Plain and simple. So the Israelites could go back and plant. And as the crops grew and were ready for harvest, who could come in and raid them? The Philistines could come in and raid the crops. So this ox goad is just referred to as a farmer's tool that was used almost like a shepherd's crutch to keep the ox in line. And if one was kind of like poking along, he'd take the little point of that ox goad and nudge the ox and he, he maybe scurry along a little bit. So it was used in agriculture. It was not a weapon of defense. was never meant for warfare. Now let's look at the truth of the matter for a moment. While others waited for God to work a miracle that would make failure impossible there in Israel, Shamgar trusted God to use him and what he had. And what we soon discover is that the Israelites' deliverance came from the most unexpected source. Deliverance came from a man who was not politically connected, a man who wasn't from the wealthiest family, a man who didn't have college degrees, a man who didn't have material military experience. Just a plain, simple farmer that God chose to deliver Israel. Why did God choose Shamgar for such a task? 
Because I believe Shamgar possessed qualities that God could use. And from these two simple verses, his entire biography resume, to me, brings out these three characteristics. First, Shamgar was willing to start where he was at. Start where you are. He was living in a time and a place when life and property and the lives and the property of his family and countrymen were at the mercy of the Philistines. They were merciless. He could have seen himself as helpless and hopeless. But he didn't. He did something about it. He didn't wait for suitable circumstances. He started where he was. All throughout the book of Judges, in fact, all throughout the Bible, doesn't God take ordinary to do the extraordinary things? God takes the ordinary to do extraordinary things. And one of the lessons through the book of Judges is that God places his spirit on people in spite of their weaknesses, in spite of their failures, in spite of their faults. God places his spirit on people who are just willing. When I think about that, if the truth is be known, we're all weak, aren't we? We all have our faults. And don't we all need God's intervention in our life? Boy, God can do a lot of things with people who admit that they need him. But God can't do with people who say they don't need him. Three times in the Bible, God opposes the what? The proud. Shamgar didn't wait till he had a army of a thousand. He didn't even recruit others into his army. He started where he was at. He wasn't satisfied with the status quo. In fact, I believe it made him sick in his stomach as he would look out the window and watch his neighbor's crops, watch the wheat being carried off. I'm sure he was sickened and he, he became angry as he looked out his own window and saw his own ox driven away by the Philistines. He started where he was. He, he didn't say, oh, well, poor little me. I don't believe he had this victim mentality, this victim complex. He doesn't complain. He doesn't whine. He just believed God had something better in mind for us than this. He saw the difficulties. He knew the enemy. He realized the weaknesses of the Israelites. But Shamgar saw more than the difficulties. He didn't look at the glass half empty. He saw the glass half full. And he believed in the divine hand of God. He saw more than just the difficulties. He saw the divine hand of God that would bring about a victory if a man was just willing. So Shamgar possesses this belief that God can use 
people to accomplish a, ha- a heavenly task. Start where you are. Use what you have. He didn't have a sword. He didn't have a spear. He didn't need one because he had an ox goad. You know, when I think about it, we don't need a lot of the things we think we need in order to do something for God. You may not have abilities. You may not have education. But you can still be used of God. You just got to start where you are and use what you have. Boy, this story almost paralyzes, uh, uh, parallels with Moses. Remember when, when God appeared to Moses in the wilderness and, and said, Moses, I, I want you to go back to Egypt because I want you to deliver my people from Pharaoh. And remember Moses? Who? Me? You, you don't mean me. I... I don't have the skills to do that. I'm not an eloquent speaker. Some translation says he stuttered. And God says, hey, Moses, I want you to use what you have. What do you got in your hand? It's just a shepherd's crutch. Put, I want you to drop it, drop it to the ground. And as he drops it to the ground, it becomes a snake. And then God asks him to pick it up. And that shepherd's crutch, that shepherd's staff, became an instrument that God used to, to make the Nile River turn into blood, to bring other plagues upon Egypt, to split the Red Sea, to perform miracles out in the wilderness. That shepherd's staff wasn't much, but he dedicated it and surrendered it to God, and it became a mighty tool. How many know God can use the things we have? We just need to surrender them to him. Shamgar could have made a lot of excuses. Lord, the last time I checked, an ox goad isn't a weapon of mass destruction. Lord, it's only me. And I'm not qualified. I'm not equipped. I never fought before. There's one gift Shamgar didn't have. He didn't have the spiritual gift of excusing himself from service. And I say that jokingly. Man, there are some people so gifted with the excuse of not being used for God. I can't do that. No, you want me to do it? No, sorry, Pastor. So when the enemy came, he stood his ground. Now, what's interesting is we're not told in Scripture whether he fought off the 600 in different time period or if he fought them off all at once. I believe that it was so significant that he fought them off in a very short period of time, the 600. Start where you are. Use what you have. Do what you can. 
defeating 600 Philistines with just an agricultural pole with a point at the end defies the odds. Definitely was a mammoth accomplishment in rescuing the Israelites. And I believe that the villages came to life and the roads were traveled once again. All because of Shamgar willing to start where he was, use what he had, and do all he could. It's not much. But wasn't that Andrew? Remember when, when they were out on the hillside and there was 500 men plus women and children and, and the Lord wanted to give them every, everybody something to eat and Andrew found this little boy with a, a little lunch of, of five loaves and two fishes and Andrew says, hey, Lord, there's, there's this boy with, with, with f- five loaves and two fishes. It's, it's not much. And the Lord says, that's all I need. Boy, talking about old songs... Little is much when God is in it. How many remember that song? No, Betty? Did you grow up Pentecostal? And you don't know little is much when God is in it? Little is much when God is in it. I don't know the rest of it. All I know is little is much when God is in it. How many of you read the worldview? They're out there. It's a missions magazine. In fact, in the ones that lay out there now, is a, at the end is an article on Cuba. <sighs> Guys, what did you think Sunday night? Was that not a wonderful presentation by Bob and Michelle Perez, man? All the heartache they went through, and man, they were just vulnerable. They were honest. What a great service that was. And now God's granting to his heart to go back to Cuba. In the early, late 50s, uh, J. Philip Hogan, who was our missions director, national missions director, uh, wanted to do a missions publication. I'll give you a little history on the worldview. The first missions publication was called Global Conquest. Global Conquest. And it was about seven years later that they thought the title could be threatening global conquest to other nations. So it was changed to Good News Crusades. You remember Good News Crusades? The magazine Good Good News Crusades. After about 12 years, they thought that that had a bad connotation, Crusaders, you know. So they changed it to... The magazine I remember, Mountain Movers. Remember the old Mountain Movers? The Assembly of God used to pass out once a month with all articles of missions. And what happened was later, like in 1998, they stopped publishing Mountain Movers. It became a part of the Pentecost Evangel. Remember the Pentecost Evangels? (laughs) The first Sunday of every month was their missions that took place of Mountain movers. It was in 1996. 
I believe it was in the spring. I remember the Mountain Movers magazine. I remember a story. I, I probably have told this story before because I think it's such a cool story. Bob Roberts was a missionary to the Philippines. And Bob Roberts was home on furlough, going from church to church, raising support. And he and his wife had an orphanage in the Philippines. And he told everybody that for 25 cents a week, or 25 cents a day, they could provide meals and vitamins for orphans. Just 25 cents a day. He got done preaching one Sunday morning. He came down to sit in a pew, and a little seven-year-old boy came up to him from a distance, just looking at him. And Bob said, come here. And unexpectedly to Bob, this kid ran up to him, climbed up on the pew, and gave a big hug around his neck. Bob let it go. The kid let go. And Bob looked the kid straight in the eyes. And the seven-year-old kid was just crying and crying and crying. He says, do you believe God can speak to a seven-year-older? And Bob, Bob Robert says, yeah, I believe God can speak to a seven-year-older. Because God spoke to me. He wants me to help those little children in the Philippines. Bob said, yeah, I, I believe it. God can speak to children. And he says that little boy slowly pulled out of his pocket a fist. And he says, I want to show you a collection of my seashells. There were six small, tiny shells that were such a treasure to this little boy. He says, Aren't they beautiful? And the missionary said, yeah, they're great. He says, God wants me to give these to the children of the Philippines. How are you going to deny a seven-year-old boy? You know, I'm afraid if it were me, it'd be like, okay, just, you know, they are such a treasure to you. Just keep them because I don't know how they're going to really help. Glass half full. The missionary took him, and he said, let's pray. And they prayed a dedictorial prayer over those six shells. Two weeks later, Bob was at another church. At the end of the service, he concluded with the story of the little freckled boy who came up and gave his prized possessions of six shells to the work at the Philippines. Sometimes we don't have much, but God uses what we cherish. After that service, a man came up. He says, can I see those shells? And the missionary showed him the shells. He says, well, he says, I want to buy them from you. You want to what? I want to buy them from you. And the guy gets out a checkbook and writes a check for $100. Takes the shells. And that missionary said, you know, that little boy would never know how those six tiny shells now provided for 400 orphans in the Philippines. 
Sometimes what we have, it doesn't seem much, does it? But God blesses and multiplies it and use it for his kingdom. A flagpole with a point, eight feet tall. Surrendered, dedicated, and sacrificed to God. And it became the means of delivering the Israelites so that they could return back to their villages and the streets could be occupied with people one more time. Defying the odds. Listen, I'm sure that many of us have circumstances in our lives right now that seem defying, that, that seem a hardship, that, that seem like we'll, we'll never see an answer. Start where you are, use what you have, and do all you can. That's the life of Shamgar. Would you pray with me?